Today is Wednesday, June 15th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukraine vows to defend a key eastern town as Russia destroys the last bridge out of the embattled city. Ukraine says more than 500 civilians are trapped inside a chemical factory in an industrial zone of the city, where its forces have resisted weeks of Russian bombardment and assault. President Joe Biden announces first trip to the Middle East with visits to Israel, the occupied West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. With a lot of going on with gas prices, jacking up inflation, and with a number of other roles that the Saudis play, it seems that President Joe Biden has opted to engage with the Saudis. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson defends plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda despite an outcry from the United Nations. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukraine said on Tuesday its forces were still holding out inside Severodonetsk and trying to evacuate civilians. This after Russia destroyed the last bridge to the devastated eastern city in a potential turning point in one of the world's bloodiest battles. Olivia Chan of Reuters reports. Satellite images released by Maxa Technologies on Tuesday showed the damage to structures around the eastern Ukrainian city collected on Saturday. Ukraine says more than 500 civilians are trapped inside a chemical factory in an industrial zone of the city, where its forces have resisted weeks of Russian bombardment and assault. The city's mayor said evacuations were being carried out discreetly every minute when there is a lull and a possibility of transportation. The National Police of Ukraine on Monday released footage of officers evacuating civilians in bomb shelters in what it said was Previlia in Luhansk region, just over 12 miles of Severodonetsk. Ukraine still holds Lysychansk, the twin city of Severodonetsk, on higher ground on the opposite bank of the river. But with all the bridges now cut between the two cities, Ukrainian forces acknowledged they could be encircled, just like in Mariupol, a city which fell in May after months of Russian siege. Russia's separatist proxies said any Ukrainian troops left behind must surrender or die. Both sides claim to have inflicted huge casualties in the fighting over the city. Moscow has committed the bulk of its firepower to delivering one of President Vladimir Putin's stated objectives, forcing Kiev to cede the full territory of two eastern provinces. Local separatist media said Ukrainian artillery struck a market on Monday in the Russian-backed Donetsk region. Bigger battles could lie ahead for the wider Ukrainian-held pocket of the Donbass. Beyond the Donbass, Ukrainian officials hope that Russia's focus on capturing the east will drain its forces from other areas. But on Tuesday, Russia said it struck an artillery weapons depot in Ukraine's Chernihiv region, the RIA news agency reported, citing the Russian Defense Ministry. That's Olivia Chan of Reuters. Ukraine continues pleading with the West to send more and better artillery to combat Russian forces in the Donbass. Speaking to Danish journalists online Tuesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky repeated as such, saying, quote, What we don't have enough are the weapons that really hit the range that we need to reduce the advantage 
of the Russian Federation's equipment, unquote. Jason Davidson is non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and political science and international affairs professor at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia. He explains the importance of artillery at this stage of the war with Flashpoint Ukraine's Steve Miller. We are really seeing is primarily an artillery war, particularly from the perspective of Ukraine, what Ukraine can do both to hold the territory that it currently has and try to regain some of the territory that it doesn't control is mostly artillery as a means to counter the Russians. Now, the Russians have the additional advantage of the advantage in air power. But from Ukraine's perspective, it's overwhelmingly artillery. And and part of that is because the Russians have gotten smarter about staying back from close combat, the mistake that they were one of the mistakes that they were making earlier on. But of course, as I think has been pretty widely established at this point, the Russians have about a 10 to 1 advantage in terms of their ability to both artillery systems and then rounds of artillery. And the, the real issue is that the Ukrainian forces are depleting their stocks of munitions. But on that notion of an imbalance between the amount of artillery that Russia has and Ukraine has, the West, the United States, the UK, NATO, they're all saying that they're going to provide additional means to Ukraine. But what are some of the logistical challenges? Because it's not just getting the equipment there. There's also training that has to factor in this because these are new weapon systems for Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. It's a major challenge. It's a logistical challenge. Even if you put aside everything else, there's a logistical challenge of, as you said, getting them to Ukraine, but also, and let's remember too, it's not just a question of getting, let's say with howitzer systems or these HIMARS, it's not that the United States has both already deployed and has promised it's going to deploy these HIMARS. It's not just a question of getting the Ukrainian military capable of firing these weapons, but they've also got to be maintained and conceivably repaired, and there's all those sorts of things that go along with it because you get to a certain point in extended use where you're going to have to do all those sorts of things. And as we saw in Afghanistan, without the support by the U.S. for either training somebody how to maintain and repair these things or on-site, and that's, of course, not going to happen in Ukraine, on-site maintenance and repair, upkeep, all those sorts of things. So that's a real challenge, and it's hard to see how that can change in the near term. What I've heard people say, and I think it's a fair point, is that if steps had been taken a month ago or two months ago, that would make it easier. But we are where we are now, and it's hard to see that changing. That's Jason Davidon, an all-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council of Pub and Political Science and International Affairs Professor at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia. He spoke with Flashpoint Ukraine Steve Miller. Australia Defense Minister Richard Ma says his country will continue to exercise its right of passage through the South China Sea despite opposition from China. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. The South China Sea is one of the world's most disputed regions. Most of it is claimed by China, but surrounding countries and the United States disagree. The sea is a critical gateway for global shipping. It's reported to have significant reserves of undiscovered oil and gas, which analysts have said has been an aggravating factor in maritime and territorial disputes. The South China Sea is bordered by Brunei, Cambodia, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Taiwan, Thailand and Vietnam. Australia has economic interests in the region and has promoted freedom of trade and navigation. 
Canberra has conducted airborne surveillance operations in the South China Sea and Indian Ocean, called Operation Gateway. The missions have been running since 1980. Australian Defence Minister Richard Miles Sunday met his Chinese counterpart Wei Fenghei in Singapore. Relations between the two countries have been strained in recent years over various political and trade disputes, including Beijing's ambitions in the South China Sea. Sunday's dialogue at a regional security summit in Singapore was the first high-level bilateral meeting in more than two years. Mal said he planned to rebuild the relationship a step at a time and has insisted that Australia would continue to fly over the South China Sea despite a Chinese jet intercepting and damaging an Australian Air Force plane with aluminum chaff in May. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. President Joe Biden will make his first trip to the Middle East next month with visits to Israel, the occupied West Bank and Saudi Arabia. The decision to pay a call on Saudi leaders comes after Biden as a Democratic presidential candidate branded the kingdom, quote, a pariah, unquote, because of its human rights record and pledged to recalibrate the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Biden plans to meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who U.S. intelligence officials determined ordered the 2018 killing of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. For more, I spoke with VOA's White House Bureau Chief, Patsy Widaskuara. The focus has been on Saudi Arabia because if you would recall, during his campaign, President Biden said that he intends to make the kingdom a pariah. Now we see that with a lot of going on with gas prices, jacking up inflation, and with a number of other roles that the Saudis play, whether it's in global energy markets or other issues that are very important to American interests in the Middle East, it seems that President Joe Biden has opted to engage with the Saudis and he will be taking a direct flight from Israel to Jeddah, which in itself is also historic because as we know, the two countries, Saudis and Israels, they do not have a diplomatic relationship. And so this will be another step that may signal following a relationship between the two and possibly a move closer towards normalization. The analysts that I spoke to say that it will be a long way before Saudis can recognize Israel and normalize relationships with them because the Saudis have made it very big major requirement, which is to have developments between the Israeli and Palestinian peace talks. And as you know, at this point, those talks are still stalled. Not everyone is happy with this announcement and the trip to Saudi Arabia. There's an expected partisan backlash. Uh, How was the White House defending this? Yeah, so there is backlash because there's a couple of uh, human rights considerations, right? Number one is the 2000 killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi that U.S. intelligence has determined was approved by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So again, this is a situation where the U.S. has to weigh between its upholding of values, human rights, and democracy. And on the other hand, just kind of real politic, uh, U.S. interests that the administration has decided that they prefer at this point to engage with the Saudis. How does President Biden thread that fine line between the economic interest of the United States and the entire world, especially when it comes to oil, and his vow to always protect human rights and also fight some nations that are allegedly committing human rights abuses? The way the administration officials have explained it is that it's better for them to engage with the Saudis and uh, at the same time will continue to 
mention or bring up human rights in these meetings. So what's also interesting is that President Joe Biden will not only meet with King Salman, but he will also meet with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And this is you know, the person who U.S. intelligence have recognized as the person behind the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So it's a complicated and a nuanced kind of decision-making from the White House, but this is how they're defending it by saying that there's just so much interest that the U.S. has in terms of engaging with Saudis, whether it's securing peace in Yemen, it's getting the agreement uh, with Iran nuclear deal, possible normalization with Israel, energy production, all sorts of economic partnerships in the Gulf. So it's just a too important a country for the U.S. to not continue engaging with. That's VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Widas Kuwara speaking with me from Washington, D.C. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has announced the formation of a committee to begin peace talks with Tigray forces after 18 months of war. Henry Wilkins reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed spoke to Parliament on Tuesday about the conflict in comments broadcast on state television. He said we need to repeat the victory that we made on the battlefield in peace talks. He added that the war is hindering the country's development, adding that every bullet that is shot is like a dollar lost. He said that the committee would be led by Deputy Prime Minister Demeke Mekonen and would be given 10 to 15 days to decide what will be up for negotiation. Although the talks may have potential to bring an end to Ethiopia's civil war, William Davidson, an analyst with the International Crisis Group, a Belgian-based non-profit research group, told VOA that important details are yet to emerge. We don't have um, a clear idea of, of the participants. Um, obviously, to achieve a sustainable and comprehensive peace, that would need the representation from other actors in the conflict. The return to Tigray forces, TPLF, of the disputed region of West Tigray, which was occupied by Amhara and national forces in the recent conflict, is likely to be a major sticking point in peace talks. Last week, TPLF spokesperson Getachew Redder denied claims that the TPLF has abandoned claims to West Tigray. The conflict in Tigray began in late 2020 between the Ethiopian federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. It exploded into a civil war that has forced two million people from their homes. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. In other news, Britain has cancelled its first deportation flight to Rwanda. The move comes after last-minute intervention by the European Court of Human Rights we decided there was, in his words, quote, a real risk of irreversible harm, unquote, to the asylum seekers involved. The flight had been scheduled to leave Tuesday evening, but lawyers for the asylum seekers launched a flurry of case-by-case appeals seeking to block the deportation of everyone on the government's list. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has said earlier in the day that the plane would take off no matter how many people were on board. But after the appeals, no one remained. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. A UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Eritrea has issued a report critical of the deteriorating situation there, noting forced military conscription, arbitrary arrests, disappearances, and torture. The report has been submitted to the UN Human Rights Council and Lisa Schneider reports for VOA from Geneva. 
Special Rapporteur Mohammed Abdel Salam Babakar says Eritrea's involvement in the armed conflict in neighboring Ethiopia shines a light on the impact of the Eritrean government system of indefinite national military service. He describes the right situation as dire. Those who attempt to evade the draft, he says, are imprisoned in inhumane and degrading conditions for indefinite periods of time. Zosurgis also punish draft evaders by proxy, for example, by imprisoning a parent or a spouse in order to force them to surrender themselves. I also received reports about the conscripts who were killed as they tried to escape from Tigray or from military training centers in Eritrea. Ethiopia's military offensive against the Tigray People's Liberation Front began November 4, 2020. Since then, thousands of Eritrean conscripts have been forced to participate in the conflict. Investigator Bobby Kerr says children as young as 14 have been rounded up and recruited and that Eritrean refugees in Ethiopian camps have been kidnapped and forced to fight. He says the human rights situation in Eritrea continues to push thousands to flee to other countries for asylum. I remain gravely concerned by the situation of hundreds of Eritreans who have been disappeared and arbitrarily detained in secret prisons in violation of human rights standards. I continue to hear testimonies from witnesses and victims who were held and tortured in places known as villas. These are actually secret places of detention that cannot be readily identified. Tesfamikel Geratu is an ambassador in Eritrea's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The ambassador said he would not respond to the outrageous allegations in the report as they were based on information from select and irresponsible sources. He added there was no human rights crisis in Eritrea and the harassment and sanctions imposed on this country had to stop. Eritrea was re-elected to serve as a member of the UN Human Rights Council in October 2021. Special Rapporteur Babiker says Eritrea's failure to promote and protect human rights puts the credibility and integrity of the council in jeopardy. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhan Ghebreyesus, said on Tuesday that the WHO will convene an emergency committee on Thursday next week to assess whether the monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. That is the highest level of warning issued by a UN agency, which currently applies only to the COVID-19 pandemic and polio. The WHO says there have been 1,600 confirmed and 1,500 suspected cases of monkeypox this year and 72 deaths in 39 countries, including nations where the virus usually spreads. The global outbreak of monkeypox is clearly unusual and concerning. It's for that reason that I have decided to convene the emergency committee under the international health regulations next week to assess whether this outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. I think it's now clear that there is unusual situation, meaning even the virus is behaving unusually from how uh, it used to behave in the past. But not only that, it's also affecting more more countries. And we believe that it needs also some coordinated response because of geographic spread. Uh, plus, at the same time, having executive committee would help us to discuss about this issue. These are experts, external experts, uh, to understand the virus uh, better. 
We believe that a meeting of the executive committee, the external experts could expand the understanding and the knowledge we have about uh, the, this virus. That's WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me for a special edition of PCUSA with guest award-winning historian and author Jesse Holland as he takes us on the journey of how the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was signed into law this year and will examine the legacy of Juneteenth, a celebration of freedom for many African Americans. Join me for PCUSA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chino Dwarf in Washington. Have a great day. editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Palestinians in Gaza face harsh living and economic conditions under Hamas, even as the terrorist group has amassed hundreds of millions in a secret investment portfolio. Hamas maintains a violent agenda that harms both Israelis and Palestinians. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and holding it to account for its role in promoting and conducting terrorist acts. That's why the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, designated a Hamas finance official as well as an expansive network of three Hamas financial facilitators and six companies that have generated revenue for the terrorist group through the management of an international investment portfolio. The individuals and companies listed below are being designated under Executive Order 13224 as amended, which targets terrorists, leaders, and officials of terrorist groups and those providing support to terrorists or acts of terrorism. Ahmed Sharif Abdallah Ode was in charge of Hamas's international investment portfolio until 2017 and subsequently oversaw the investment portfolio on behalf of Hamas's Shura Council. In mid-2017, Usama Ali was appointed as head of the investment office, a position from which he coordinated financial transfers to Hamas. Hisham Yunus Yahya Kafisha served as Usama Ali's deputy and played an important role in transferring funds on behalf of various companies linked to Hamas's investment portfolio. 
Anda Company, Aggregate Holding, Trend GYO, and Al Rawad Real Estate Development are all linked directly or indirectly to Hamas. Moreover, Sidar Company and Itkan Real Estate JSC both appeared to operate as legitimate businesses, but in practice were controlled by Hamas and transferred money to the group. And finally, Abdallah Yusuf Faisal Sabri is an accountant who has worked in the Hamas Finance Ministry for several years. These designations target the individuals and companies that Hamas uses to conceal and launder funds, said Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, Elizabeth Rosenberg. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and to holding Hamas accountable for its role in promoting and carrying out violence in the region. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 